Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, June 6th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter, at Inquiring Show, on Facebook, at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or on pretty much any other podcasting app. I also want to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Harry's Razors, a new company that is disrupting the shaving industry by, at last, making a high-quality shaving experience eminently affordable. It just costs 15 bucks to get a Harry's Razor set, and that includes the razor handle, three blades, and shaving cream, and you get it shipped to your door. There's even a custom engraving option to put your initials on the razor. And today, a Harry's shaving set costs even less than that because we have a special offer for you, our listeners. If you go to harrys.com and you use this promo code, Inquiring Minds, you can save $5 off your first purchase. So head on over to harrys.com now, and we will wait for you. So today's show is about chemistry, which is one of the drier sciences, arguably. I have to say that I dust off my chemistry textbooks far, far, far less frequently than any other book on my shelf. And it's generally ignored by the media, unless, of course, it's to blame Big Pharma for, you know, all of our problems. Enter Rachel Burks. She's a chemist at Doan College with a flair for making chemistry cool. Uh, she earned her PhD in chemistry from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and she's now has a cross appointment both in uh, at Doan College and at the Center for Nanohybrid Functional Materials at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. She also blogs at Scientopia.org with the blog Thirty Seven, which we'll we'll talk about uh, about why it's called Thirty Seven and why her Twitter handle is Doctor Rubidium. So just to give you a bit of a teaser of what she has to say about some of the major controversies in which chemistry can play a role, here's a quick take from the interview. Then there's words like natural, and, and that has really reached a level of, what does that mean? Is that, does that mean it's found in nature? Because there's tons of stuff we found in nature. It really works in something. And then we decided to, you know what, we're going to make products out of it. Well, we got to use a lot of this thing. So now that we know what it looks like and how it works, we're going to go make it in the lab because we can make it efficiently, we can make it cheaply, and we can make tons of it because we're going to use a lot of it. So it might be that you've whipped it up in a lab, so it's 
synthetic, I guess you could call it. But it is a naturally occurring. So, Chris, what do you think about that? Well, I am I am thrilled. This is my single favorite part of the interview. People hear the rest because I now have a totally new argument in my arsenal that I can use for why calling things natural in like a good way or calling things unnatural as if it's a bad thing is meaningless and confusing. And I didn't even think of this one. So this one is like more power to those of us who are trying to stop this confusion over the natural unnatural. So I'm happy. Excellent. So that that's going to be our interview today. Uh, we're looking forward to it. But first, let's talk about some stuff we came across this week in the science sphere. And let's do it a little different this time, because to help us out to be sane and insightful about all of these topics we want to talk about, we have a special guest, uh, Rebecca Watson, whom you might know from Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I think we have some overlap in listeners. And also from the awesome blog, Skeptic. So, Rebecca, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, can I just throw out the factoid that Rachel Burks is also a writer at Skeptic. She's our resident chemist. Oh, oh my God. And I didn't, um, I somehow missed that. So thank you. Well, <laughs> yeah. how about how fortuitous is that? Awesome. Yeah, awesome. it works. So um, let me let me take us into our first story uh, for today. And I know that Rebecca and Andre, I know you both have things to say about this. Let me just set it up a little bit. So this week, everybody was talking about a new science paper with a really crazy sounding finding. And the finding is that hurricanes named after women are more dangerous, more deadly than hurricanes named after men. And I first heard about this. I'm like, what? Because Naming hurricanes today, the way they do it is they just alternate <laughs> between female and male. So this year, there haven't been any Atlantic hurricanes. But as soon as there is one, the first one will be Arthur. And then the second one will be Bertha. And the third one will be Cristobal. Okay? And then comes Dolly. Okay? You get the picture. So why would something that just alternates, you know, back and forth have a bias in terms of which storms are stronger or more deadly? But the paper is in a serious journal. It's Proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences, which is very high up in the journal rankings. And they do have an explanation, a proposed explanation. People are more afraid of the male hurricanes because of unconscious gender stereotypes. So they don't take as much evasive action when it's a woman coming after them, or at least, you know, that's, that's the proposed explanation. But the study is under fire from a lot of researchers criticizing its methods. The authors are defending themselves and their methodology. I don't know. What's up? Guys, help me. Is this at all serious? <laughs> I'll let Rebecca take the first stab. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a lot of problems with the study, and I've seen some valid criticisms. I've also seen some criticisms that I thought were maybe a little bit unfair, too. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people that are just calling the study outright BS. And I'm not sure that that's entirely fair, but I definitely see where they're coming from. Uh, the biggest... Uh, criticism that I'm seeing levied is the fact that we didn't start naming hurricanes with male names until 1979. And so the vast majority of your data points are going to come from female names. Now, the study authors tried to combat that by uh, not talking about male versus female as a black and white sort of issue, like a male name and a female name. Instead, they came up with an 11-point femininity scale so that the uh, the name Sandy might be considered less feminine than the name Belle, for instance. Uh, and the problem is that that still leaves your data set heavily 
uh, bias toward the female end of the spectrum. They did try to look at data points after 1979, but they say that they didn't have enough data points to make a statistically significant finding. And I think that that kind of says something. It says maybe we should wait until there are more data points to even really start talking about that. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the biggest problem I have with it is that is it seems a little premature. And they, you know, arguably, they are saying, look, we're talking about degree of femininity, we're looking at a correlation. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing then is to make this leap by, okay, let's say there is some correlation between degree of femininity of a name. Let's just take that as a given, which I'm not sure it is. Uh, and and the number of deaths. Now they're going around and saying, well, this is because everybody has an unconscious gender stereotype. If the if it's more feminine, we are less, you know, freaked out by this storm. Uh, therefore, we're less prepared. Like, that's a huge assumption. There are a lot of steps in between those two ideas that have to be filled in before we can make that kind of a conclusion. Yeah. yeah and they... They did conduct some psychological studies to go along with this to support this idea that the whole thing is based on an implicit bias. Uh, but those studies have come under fire as well. Uh, you've got uh, basically what they did was they um, they had their subjects um, read scenarios of different hurricanes, some with male names, some with female names. Um, there were several different studies that that all looked at similar sort of issues like that. And what they found by and large was that the subjects were more likely to find male named hurricanes to be uh, more aggressive and they were more more likely to say that they would evacuate their homes if a male hurricane was bearing down on them. Uh, the subjects themselves did not report that they were basing their opinion on the gender of the name of the hurricane. Uh, and so that's why the researchers are saying that this is an implicit bias. But there are criticisms of those studies, um, the biggest of which is that the first three studies were done all on college students. The last three were all done on people found on Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Yes. Uh, the cheap labor of science. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, none of whom necessarily are going to react in the same way as people in coastal cities with storms bearing down on them. Um, but I have to say that this is one of those instances where I feel like sometimes the criticism might be a little too harsh. Uh, because yes, I think those are valid criticisms, but those are also valid cri criticisms of 99% of all psychological studies. Yeah, that would be, that we'd have to throw out a whole, <laughs> so yeah. much if you're going to throw those out. So what about the wimpy men? You know, like, what if you got, like, Hurricane Chris, no big deal. Like, I know a Chris <laughs> and he's a total wimp. I mean, why don't we just, you know, they're playing this game at Slate. And it was pretty funny. They're like, let's come up with some real hurricane names that'll make everybody retreat. So I was thinking about Hurricane Slaughter, Hurricane Rage, <laughs> Hurricane Creeping Death. I mean, problem solved, right? I mean, yeah, if, th if that, yeah, if, th if that's really the issue, that that's an easy yeah. fix to the problem, and maybe that's what these researchers are saying. Um, I'm really interested in in those, you know, gender neutral hurricanes like Chris yeah. and Sandy and Pat. Uh, you know what's going on there, um, but in any case, you know obviously there's more data that need to be collected uh, before we go and and completely say you know this is exactly true. Um, but on the other hand, if it's an easy fix, man, it seems a lot cheaper to change the name of a hurricane uh, than to have you know lives lost in 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 a hurricane. Very cheap. Okay, so any any other takes on this one, or Indre, you wanna you move on, and you have another study that's pretty cool. I'm ready to move on. What about okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so everyone was talking about hurricanes this week, and they completely missed this really cool spider study, which is a total shame. Um, in the journal Advanced Materials, a group from the UK, which included universities of Oxford, Strathclyde, which is an awesome name, and Sheffield, they found that spiders can actually use the vibration patterns on their webs to figure out what's for dinner and whether their dinner date is attractive and or interested. So this is pretty amazing. It seems like that these spiders actually pluck their web like a guitar string and then use the resulting harmonics or, you know, the, the waves that come out of, of that, that plucking, um, to get more information about what's on the web. Uh, and it gets even cooler. To figure this out, the scientists shot the web with bullets and lasers. It's like a real life action <laughs> My movie My favorite sequence. part of the study. Yes. <laughs> it's totally awesome. And if you want to see some of their videos, you can go on YouTube and search for Oxford Silk Group. Can I okay, just help say, like, okay. oh, yeah. is, is it all right if I jump in? Oh, yeah, yes. so go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Because I've been dying to ask you this, Andre, as an expert in whatever this is. Um, <laughs> there, so researchers wanted to study these very minute vibrations in spider webs. And so they said, how should we do that? Let's shoot it with a gun. Yes, that's cool. <laughs> is it? Is it I, I'm imagining that it is only yeah. because they're like sitting around at a party saying, "Hey guys, how can we shoot a gun <laughs> in yeah. in some sort how of? How do we make use of these people capacity? who are going to Chili's with weapons? Like, oh, let's get them to shoot spider webs rather than right. scaring people. Well, where know? was this done? If it was like England or, or something, then you know yeah, it could be very difficult to find able. an excuse to shoot a gun. So. Yeah, it, yeah. Out. I mean, it's it it is in the UK, and you know, full disclosure, I have no idea why they chose bullets, um, except to say that I think what they're you know they're they're trying to film this with high speed cameras, and it's possible that there was something to do with the size of the the vibrations they needed to create in order to be caught on camera, um, because if you use anything too small, it just might you know it might not not be picked up by the cameras. Um, but they did find what's really cool is that that the vibrations that the spiders sensed were on the order of nanometers. So like really, really, really tiny changes. Um, and so that's that's kind of amazing. And, and they use the lasers uh, to sort of see what's going on. You know, obviously, the lasers aren't going to um, affect the web, but um, but the bullets do that. <laughs> I imagine they do. <laughs> they also found that 90 percent of spiders are anti-gun. They did. Right. They did. Yeah. Yeah. They did not <laughs> please, like. <laughs> please stop doing that. Yeah. Uh, so serious question here. Um I mean, we always knew that spiders were very, very sensitive to what's happening in their webs. I mean, everybody thought before that it was just a sense of touch, not a sense of sound. Is that? That's exactly right. And, and in some ways, you know, they are, you know, they are possibly responding to the actual physical sensation of the wave, right? As opposed to transmitting it into an electrical signal the way we do with sound. We don't, we don't exactly know, but, um, or at least, I don't know. Maybe uh, the the researchers know, but what's interesting is that you know we we know already that that spiders that that the webs are are you know extremely strong and and extremely durable and they're extremely specific. Um, and here's just another way in which we can see that these spiders actually can use um, the information that they get from these vibrations to figure out whether their web is good. You know whether they've done a good job of spinning their web because it sounds right, uh, which is another cool feature. Well, it's harmonic, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know. If it's symmetrical, there's a certain structure to that that maybe has a sound. Exactly right. 
Andre, do you think that this is the first step towards creating a human spider language through which we might eventually one day be able to pluck a spider web in such a way as to tell it, get out of my house? Uh, yes. I'm, okay. no. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to kill your children. <laughs> no, but yeah, you could have spider chimes that you ring before yeah. bed. No, spiders are awesome. Come on, they get rid of all the nasty things that are in your house. And uh, so this is just another reason why you should keep them around, because they're making music. Yeah. Sometimes when they crawl in your mouth at night as you're sleeping. Okay, that's gross. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny to catch them in the bottom of a garbage can that they can't get out of, too. All right. Okay, so. enough of that. Uh, I just want to thank Rebecca Watson for coming on our show today. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was fun. And we'll take a short break and be back with my interview with Rachel Burks. So here's a thing that I think we've all experienced. You know you have. You go into the drugstore, you need razor blades because they always run out. And you have to go through like a wall you know you have to push the buzzer and get the guy to come to open the thing to get you the razors because they're so expensive that they have to protect them from thieves uh they have to be locked up and you're like okay you know now i'm gonna pay for this and i wonder i wonder if i did the math how much i pay for this (laughs) over the course of a year uh that's where harry's razors come in this is a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by making a good shave affordable it costs just 15 bucks for a harry's razor set that includes the handle the three blades and shaving cream and it's all shipped to your door and there's a custom engraving option you can put your initials on your razor in fact today a harry's razor shaving set costs even less because they're giving us a special offer for you guys if you go to harrys.com and use the promo code inquiring minds which is hard to forget you can save five dollars off your first purchase now i say this as a user i I have some backlog. I have some other cartridges from other razors. That's an inventory issue. Um, But I'm using Harry's going forward because it works and it is so much cheaper. So once again, we have a special offer for you today from harrys.com. For Just Inquiring Minds listeners, go to harrys.com, use the promo code Inquiring Minds, and save $5 off your first purchase. And actually, my husband bought these uh, during our last promo, and I have to say, the packaging is pretty cool looking, too. Loyal Inquiring Minds listener. (laughs) He he is. Probably our most loyal. (laughs) Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Rachel Burks. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. You've got some pretty unique ways of applying chemistry to the real and even fictional worlds. And so I wanted to ask you for a little bit of advice. In the coming zombie apocalypse, what should we do to protect ourselves? Run. No, because um, <laughs> the first rule is cardio, as we all learned in Zombieland. Um, so make sure you're fit. No, I would. I think it's a it's a multi, you know, kind of pronged attack, like a lot of any big cataclysmic event, natural disasters or an accident. You want to have a lot of different options. But chemically speaking, chemical camouflage, which lots of different animals use in nature to protect themselves, is a good way to go. Because it seems like zombies know that you're dead or not dead because they're not eating other zombies for the most part, but they're attacking living creatures. And how do they know that they're actually living um, so maybe it has to do because you don't smell dead. And we saw that in the show The Walking Dead, that they used chemical camouflage. So we could certainly use that. That would be a way that, you know, we could use chemistry because there's a couple key chemicals that smell really stinky. So what, what are those chemicals? 
Two right off the top would be, and they've got great names, cadaverine and putrescine. They're both polyamines, and they do smell like their names. Um, and they're actually used uh, to train cadaver dogs or, you know, human remain dogs uh, when, uh, you know, real samples maybe would be hard to come by. Um, so they really do have that kind of rotting corpse smell. And we actually produce them when we start to decompose early in the decomposition um, kind of pathway. So you could make up, you know, a, a death cologne and kind of use chemical camouflage to your advantage so that you can sneak through a zombie horde. And, you know, putting on some cologne sounds a lot less gross than, you know, putting guts and stuff all over yourself. The way yeah, they do in the because, you know, the, the problem with the zombie apocalypse, too, is especially from movies and books, we never kind of know what is the tipping, like what's the infection mechanism. So, it doesn't really make sense to want to coat yourself with bodily fluids if you're not quite sure how zombieism is being spread. Less gross and safer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So now that we've sorted that out, uh, there's one other way in which you apply your knowledge of chemistry, and that is to figure out what kind of poisons kill our favorite fictional characters. So um, I am talking about here the Game of Thrones, which is a great HBO TV show. And we're not going to spoil uh, it for our audience and let them know who was killed. But there is a character that gets killed by a poison called the Strangler. So tell us a little bit about how you figured out a potential source for the poison, the Strangler. So in uh, George R. R. Martin's books, uh, he describes the strangler as being, you know, from an exotic plant on the other side of the world. And that what it does is once you ingest it, usually, you know, in wine or some kind of a food item, that it causes the muscles of a man's throat to clench tighter than a fist. That's actually how Martin describes the strangler. So what that said to me is, okay, we need a poison that will cause muscles to contract. And there are a, a, a several poisons um, or really chemicals. You know, the line between being a poison and being just a regular old friendly chemical can, is, is often just dosage. There's a couple that actually work on muscle. And so there's a, there's a few, of course, people will recognize there's a couple of plant-based poisons that always show up in fiction, especially Agatha Christie. She was a great lover of poisons. And so those would be hemlock and, you know, historically Lots of people have been taken out with hemlock. Um, you've also got belladonna. It's got a really unique history. And then, of course, my, my own favorite, which is strychnine. I settled on strychnine because of the way it works. It actually causes something called strychnine grin because it starts working on the muscles of your face and neck first, and it causes the muscles to violently contract, and sometimes so violently that the muscle is ripped from the bone. <laughs> it's incredibly oh, wow. painful. It also affects the muscles that control breathing, your intercostal muscles in your diaphragm. So it kind of fit. It's not a perfect match. And I think that's the fun part, though, is being able to read these fantasy novels or sci-fi and horror and think, hey, how could we really do that? And some, I mean, the authors themselves are getting inspired from, from historical events and from actual cases and crimes. And so could we maybe, okay, so what was, Mar what was maybe Martin's inspiration or, or what could we do 
in real life? Is there something even remotely similar? And so that's kind of the fun part. It's almost, you know, you get to play detective, scientific detective. Um, and it gets people really thinking about, you know, myself included, about how could we come up with this? What could we piece together uh, to make this work? Or alternatively, there's nothing we can come up with to make it work. And that, that fits too because, you know, it's the fantasy realm. It's, it's completely fiction. So, you know, to kind of look at things really closely and decide, could we make it work? Uh, we can't. Either one is a great exercise and a lot of fun. Yeah, so knowing your chemistry can help you appreciate your favorite fiction, uh, in addition to helping you solve crimes. So that's great. But I want to get back to you, Rachel, and your journey into chemistry, a field in which women and minorities are traditionally underrepresented. What was it about chemistry that made you, an African-American woman, want to devote your career to it? Well, I got to chemistry actually through crime. Um, not my own, I should say that up front, but I went on an eighth grade graduation trip to Washington, D.C., and we got to go see some of the FBI lab folks um, tell us a bit about how they're using science and forensic science and chemistry and biology to help solve crime. Um, and as far as I can recall, this is my earliest memory of seeing how science could be useful kind of in an applied way. I mean, I was aware of, you know, space travel and medicine, all of that. But this somehow this resonated as, wow, this is really useful in, in the everyday. And, and that really caught my attention. And, and from that point forward, I just really got interested in the use of science to kind of support criminal investigations, if you will. And so from there, I kind of started gobbling up tons of books on the topic and, you know, nonfiction and fiction and um, decided to uh, go to college and kind of pursue that as a career plan and really got interested in how I can help in the development of techniques to support kind of the forensic science or forensic science applications, not just kind of crime lab type stuff, but you know, the FDA has a forensic component. Fish and Wildlife has a forensic component. There are private labs. There's, there's all kinds of work going on in that general field. And so it all really started with that eighth grade graduation trip that kind of got me interested um, in the sciences in general. And I think that that's kind of, you know, what's the spark? What's the thing that gets people's attention to get them even interested in science? And I think everybody, you know, you guys have talked to a lot of scientists, and everybody kind of has their own story in how they got interested. But, you know, I just, I remember reading back, I want to say it was March of last year, when the Department of Energy hosted kind of a STEM G-chat about, you know, why is there this gap in the STEM workforce? They had a statistic where they said that blacks and Latinos make up 28% of the workforce, but only about 7% of the STEM workforce. And that seems like a big, you know, what's the impediment there? And I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of answers on, you know, going way back to how do you actually get people to pursue STEM degrees, to leaky pipeline issues, to, to all of that. And, and honestly, I don't know if anybody has the single answer on, on what the, why the gap. Um, and not only that, but then how to get, how to fix that gap. And is there really one 
problem. I think that's the that's the tricky thing is to to make it seem as if it's why aren't there more black female chemists? Like as if that is a a single answer question. I don't I don't really know if there is. There's uh it's just I I think there's just a lot of reasons, you know, implied bias, explicit bias, access, um, you know, advancement uh is an issue. We you know, and that's kind of become more of a popular thing this last couple of years is looking not only as, you know, we've got a lot of women pursuing undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees in the sciences, but yet the advancement is not happening. And do you stay in a career field where your advancement opportunities are kind of running up against, you know, a glass ceiling or a glass wall? If you want to, that you're, you're not seeing those, those people holding those degrees at department chairs, if you're in academia or, you know, deans or college presidents, or if you're in industry, you're not seeing them, you know, kind of, you know, managers, executives, you know, that those levels of achievement. So then does that lack of seeing leadership then influence everybody on the way down going, well, why would I pursue that career track if I'm not seeing the opportunity for advancement where other fields, there's extreme opportunity for advancement. That that That's just one of the many issues in that. And of course, then you get to the the idea of access when you're a kid, how much STEM education, different school districts, different regions of the country. I mean, it's it can be wild in how much differences there are in just a single city um, and in a, a single kind of education district. So I just think, I think it's, you know, it maybe seemed like a cop-out answer, but I think there's just too many answers for it to be that nice kind of why aren't there more as if it's going to be a single one yeah well i certainly that's certainly not a cop-out answer you know i was really intrigued by this idea that you know your very first experience was one in which you saw how science was applied and i have to say that you know i i went to i was pre-med in college and in my first year i took chemistry and out of a class of 1500 students i ended up getting the top grade. Um, and so I got this award from the chemistry department. They gave me my first scholarship. It was like, you know, several hundred dollars. And, and they were like, you know, we really think that you should become a chemistry major. <laughs> um, and first of all, they thought I was an Indian man, which I thought was really interesting. They were surprised when I showed up and here's like this white girl. <laughs> but that's because of my name. But in any, in any case, I couldn't imagine what use chemistry could possibly have in a career. So I thought, well, that seems like a complete waste of time. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to keep going and, and being pre-med. And, you know, I ended up in a different field altogether. But it's interesting to me that we had very different experiences. And yet, so in some ways, almost the same um, chance of, of yes. choosing that same major. So what is analytical chemistry then? And, and, and what exactly do you do? So I like to joke that, you know, analytical chemists, we say that, you know, people say that you can find needles in a haystack. If you can find needles in a haystack, that's really impressive. And analytical chemists say, those are two wildly different things, a needle and a haystack. How about if you try to find a very particular needle in a stack of needles? <laughs> and that is, that's the challenge is, can you design systems or methods to you know, to find a very particular thing. And that thing might be a chemical. It might be, you might be investigating a particular process, but you often want to investigate something or observe something in a very complex 
environment to the exclusion of nearly everything else and have that done reliably. And of course, you know, it's a bit of chemistry. You have to know a lot about chemistry to be able to design these systems. And it's a, a bit of, you know, engineering. You're, off, you're often designing either methods or instruments or, you know, there's that, that whole area. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there's a li- maybe a, a scotch of, of Sherlock, just a little bit. So I was um, reading your dissertation, and uh, let, me, let me just, for our uh, listeners, let me just read the title, which is about as far as I got. Uh, Characterization of novel macrocyclic polyether modified pseudo-stationary phases for use in micellar electrokinetic chromatography and development of a chemiluminescence presumptive array assay Sorry for peroxide-based explosives. Now, that sounds really badass, and I have no idea what you do. You're cracking me up because I think you might be the only person outside my committee. <laughs> um, so I worked on a lot of different projects as a graduate student. And so there's a really great PhD comic actually about how you name your dissertation. And, uh, and of course, you, you always, I mean, these are two entirely different projects that are linked only by the word and. Um, so the title is like ridiculous. I mean, even when I was typing, I'm like, this is... I don't even, um, so I did a lot of, I was in a separations group uh, where we, the group itself used, you know, different types of chromatography, again, to separate out chemicals of interest from large collections of other stuff. So that was a lot of what I spent my time on. And the other one, again, a completely different project, uh, was developing a very simple low-tech chemiluminescent test. So Mix a couple chemicals together, and you get light. You know, no, no need to put anything in. You're not shining light on it. That'd be fluorescence. Um, so you mix some things together, and if you get this light develop, you're like, we got it. Like that, you know, real simple test. And the test itself was for peroxide-based explosives like TATP and HMDT. Um, so they're very different. I mean, one was using kind of high-tech equipment and you know, all this stuff. And the one was, what couple chemicals can we add together that you could maybe do in a field for a field test kit that could give you a, it would be a presumptive test. It simply indicates the presence of something um, that you could maybe use in a a law enforcement setting or, you know, that, you know, in a a forensic setting where you could kind of like they do with the phenolphthalein test, which is indicative of, or indicates the presence of blood. And that provides just a presumptive answer. So really two, <laughs> two different tests, which kind of fits in a little bit with what I'm doing now as far as kind of more, you have kind of a more high-tech route, and then you have kind of what we would say your low-tech or your wet chemical techniques, which a lot of these have been around forever, and they work great. Instruments are awesome. We love, you know, the speed and the duplication and the automation, um, but sometimes you do need these, you need a low-tech option. And so I kind of tend to work on projects in both areas. Oh, that's really, that's really cool. I mean, so I imagine that some of the things that you're doing, for example, let's say they go into a crime scene and they want to find out, you know, were peroxide-based explosives the, the cause of a fire, for example, or something like that, that, then they could use some of your work to sort of figure that out. They could. And there's a lot of people working on this, especially, you know, um, there's especially peroxide-based explosives in the last 10 to 15 years have really their use in nefarious activities, if you will, have really increased. They're very easy to make. I mean, they're incredibly dangerous. They're not stable at all, but they're very easy to make. 
Um, and so you've got a lot of great work going out there that's not only instrument based, but also kind of more wet chemical because, you know, if maybe you have places, you know, where, again, the power input you need for some instruments is real limited, but is there kind of a couple chemicals, reagents that you could add in um, that you, you can get an answer, enough of an answer that you can make a command decision, if you will where we need to shut down this building, we need to evacuate this block, something that gives you enough information to do that. And then, of course, you'd always do usually a confirmatory test. Drug, this is very popular in detecting drugs. There are a lot of kind of roadside drug kits that law enforcement use that, you know, are, again, presumptive assays. They might, like marquee tests, might turn bright pink with this certain drug, and it might turn this color with this certain drug. And it's, it's just enough information for them to say, okay, well, I'm going to take this and you're going to sit over there. No, <laughs> you know, to make, and, and same thing with phenolphthalein. Anyone who's watched NCIS or CSI, any of them, has seen this test for blood. Um, you know, red, brown stain, you know, you see it, they put a drop of something on there and then another drop and it turns pink. And of course, chemists know phenolphthalein because it's a pH indicator and anybody who's taken Gen Chem is at an acid-base titration. Phenolphthalein comes back like a nightmare. They remember uh, what it's used for. So it works not only for, can, it can, again, indicate the presence of something, but since it turns pink in a lot of scenarios, you, you, you know, it's enough to kind of give you a heads up and say, you might want to take a closer look at this, and then we pull it for, for con confirmation tests. And there are some really great presumptive tests out there that some of them are very old, some of them are still being developed because it's just a cheap, you know, way to get a quick answer. Um, and so there's a lot of those in use uh, in all kinds of fields. So what you're getting at something actually that um, I learned when I did a television show on the Oprah Winfrey Network called Miracle Detectives that surprised me, which is that it's actually not that easy to figure out the chemical composition of a particular compound. So, you know, in our case, we had um, these oils that were purportedly mysterious and holy and coming out of nowhere. And so I got a sample of these oils and sent them out to a forensics uh, lab in Oregon. And um, these, these are, these are, this was a lab that works with the FDA commonly. And to sort of say, you know, what is in this compound? Is it something that is otherworldly, shall we say, or supernatural? Or is it, you know, olive oil with some rose perfume or something? Uh, and they, they couldn't give me a definitive answer in the end, but they could show me sort of, you know, the, the spectrograph or sort of the, the, I would say the signature of chemicals that are in there and sort of how much they overlap with what chemicals they already know. And so it's kind of like a, like a fingerprint matching thing, but not quite as exact. Well, I think that's really the challenge, especially when you, when you talk about something like even a cup of coffee with what, a thousand plus chemicals, or when you're talking about a natural oil, like if you take citrus oil from the rind, um, the number of chemicals, ones that are you know, going to be soluble in, in oils and fats, and ones that are going to be soluble in water, and, and you can get kind of an idea by doing some type of analysis where you're like, well, it's this percentage of inorganic material and that percentage of organic material. But actually cracking the entire, like mapping out the entire chemical composition of, of some of these naturally occurring oils or extracts from plants or, I mean, that can take, that work. And there have been some, you know, we've gotten some great medicines and treatments from natural products. The work that it takes to actually kind of map out the complete chemical composition is mind-boggling. I mean, even to get, say, a dozen, which doesn't, 
you're like, ah, eh, it doesn't. When you're talking about potentially it being within hundreds and then being sometimes very structurally related, that work is just wow. I love reading the Journal of um, Agriculture and Food Chemistry. You're still getting, you know, hey, we finally figured out what these ones were in wine, and look at this thing in, you know, cheese. You know, I mean, anything that you have, you know, kind of a living, developing, evolving thing, and even something that you've been, you know, drinking or enjoying for a long time, you finally get techniques, you know, get limits of detection, and the ability to detect things and discern things is getting lower, and, and, you know, you're able to find even smaller quantities, and you're able to do the work. It's always evolving. So it's not as if sometimes new things are showing up. It's that you're finally able to actually see these things um, for the first time. And even now, I mean, there's still, and then, you know, you'll see, and then there's a bunch of other stuff. Like, you know, we know that there's this other stuff in there. We just haven't cracked it yet. So that can be, that is kind of the fun stuff is to see that. And there's, you know, a lot of people in the natural products area and analytical areas that are trying to, ferret out what exactly is in everything. And it can be really rewarding and very frustrating. <laughs> well, you're touching upon something that is really interesting, actually, that, that is kind of a myth, uh, particularly in kind of the organic farming world, um, that things that are found in nature are inherently better and less toxic, and that natural products are what we should be looking for when we're thinking about our food and things that we put into our home. When the reality is, is that we actually know exactly what a synthetic product is made from. And we know, I don't even know what the percentage is, but we know much less about what's in a natural product. I think it's tricky. You know, people, there's, there's, especially lately, I, you know, even the word organic, you know, even within the food community, what that actually means. You know, if you say organic to a chemist, they're going to be like, yes, something that contains carbon. All right. Um, but when you say that within the confines of, of food and drink, what does that even mean? I don't even think there's a consensus on what, on what that means. But then, then there's words like natural. And, and that has really reached a level of what does that mean? Is that, does that mean it's found in nature? Because there's tons of stuff we found in nature. It really works in something. And then we decided to, you know what, we're going to make products out of it. Well, we got to use a lot of this thing. So now that we know what it looks like and how it works, we're going to go make it in the lab. Because we can make it efficiently, we can make it cheaply, and we can make tons of it. Because we're going to use a lot of it. So it might be that you've whipped it up in a lab, so it's synthetic, I guess you could call it, but it is a naturally occurring. So, you know, what? where's the line there of saying, you know, if you're going to have, you can make caffeine in the lab, or you can get caffeine from, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, mint. Mint is a good one. There's We have mint-derived compounds in all kinds of stuff, you know, all that kind of icy hot we like the smell of it, so it, you know it, it, you'll say, "Oh, a mint extract or mint flavor or mint scent." How many of those are actually from plant extracts? So that'd be a lot of mint, but we grow a lot of it. And how much do we actually like methanol? If we want like a little tingly, a little nice the smell, how much are we just you know ordering from the nice pharma company that will whip it up for us by the metric ton? Uh, so which one's better? Well, the chemical is the chemical. If you have caffeine for coffee, you know, some milligrams, and then you put the same number of milligrams, it's, it's caffeine. 
there's whether it's natural source or whether you've made it in the lab, it's caffeine. Um, and so there, there is no distinguishing. One is, it is each other. It's equal to each other. So I think it's, it's almost, I wonder sometimes if we're trafficking on fear, companies that are saying, oh, this has all natural ingredients. Does it really? Because what does all natural mean? You'd have to agree on what that meant. And then why is then making it in the lab bad? Especially when it comes, there are certain vitamins that we, you know, vitamin Bs and, and, and maybe in vitamin Ds that we, we add to a lot of things so that people, you know, if there's vitamin D deficiency in the Pacific Northwest, it's pretty common. When I used to live, I didn't have one before, but I, I moved up there and all of a sudden vitamin D deficiency. Um, so you start, you know, you, you take in extra and maybe it's not natural. Because you've you've made you've purchased the really cheap one that's made in a lab and they follow all the procedures, but then you have people saying, well, you know, you should only get it from natural sources. Why? When it works the same, when one is actually economical and allows the widest number of people to be able to, you know, enjoy that and, and be able to include it into their routine if needed. Um, and so sometimes I do I do wonder if this push towards those areas is what's the intention there? I, I do think we, we should be completely clear on what ingredients are because chemicals maybe are scary when people don't know what they are. And even the word chemical, unfortunately, has become synonymous with toxic and poison, which is another hot issue because there is no kind of attached negative or positive for that matter to the word chemical. But that's really changed a lot in the recent years, too, as you see a lot of people using the word chemical when they mean poison <laughs> or when they mean bad or when they mean, when they mean fake or when they mean, you know, all it's become this kind of bad word. And that's unfortunate. And I think it's a wee bit dishonest, right? When you, when you don't give people the full information, what goes in the place of ignorance is fear. You don't give people information, they're going to, you know, me too. You default to what? Um, what? You know, you tense up and you you don't know, so you avoid. So more information is always better. Yeah, and no, I mean, I, th I think you're touching on something that is really important, which is that you know, if if we are ignorant of something, then we our default state is to fear it. And so, you know, people say things like, if you can't pronounce it, it's got to be bad, right? And of course, the chemical names are often very difficult to pronounce, even though they're completely innocuous. And, you know, and, and you're right that vitamin C or, or vitamin D, if it's exactly the same chemical structure, whether it's made in the lab or grown on a tree, it doesn't matter. The effect on the body is exactly the same. Although most of us really think that no, vitamin C made in the lab is less effective uh, than, you know, vitamin C from an orange. So what what is the source of that myth? I mean, part of me wonders whether it isn't a dosing problem, right, which is something that chemists deal with all the time. Maybe the amount of vitamin C in a product differs depending on whether it's made in a lab or, you know, grown on a tree. Um, but do, do you have any other idea of why it is that people believe that um, chemicals made in the lab are less effective, especially in food products, than things that are grown you know, or organically? Well, I think, you know, kind of one would be the visceral reaction people have, you know, in the last year or two to lab-grown meat. Even scientists are like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you're just like, did you just say lab-grown? I mean, even, you know, if, if somebody, you're just, 
it's almost you just the programming of it becomes your your meat and your protein sources. You know, you see a moo cow on the side of the road and you're like, that's what's for dinner. Um, but someone hands you a, you're like, where did you just make this in the lab? Like, it's just, it's, how do you explain that? It could be, you know, years of kind of indoctrination on, on where things should come from and what they should look like. And then someone hands you something in the lab and you're like, you want me to eat this? Like, and so I think that would be kind of a real modern example. But the idea of, you know, is, is vitamin C that you get from an orange better than a supplement that you could take? Chemically, biologically speaking, if, if first of all, if you have a deficiency or trying to maintain a healthy level, uh, no. But again, I mean, fresh citrus for a large group of people can be too expensive, too hard to get when you can give them, you know, a dissolvable packet and say, you want to maintain this level, take one of these a day. And that works beautifully. I mean, all of these things, if you, if you medically need to, then there are options for that. And trying sometimes to get, quote, natural sources or something that's kind of, you look outside, you know, go buy it in the store and it's a food product, can be tricky to do for a lot of economic reasons, availability issues, you know, all of, of that kind of stuff. So, but where that comes from, I wonder if like, like the lab-grown meat, like, you know, where we get, if you're a meat eater, where you get your products from is more marketing, indoctrination, imagery of we, oh, it's like, like when you watch orange juice, orange juice commercials, they're always the same now. It's like half the screen is a farmer out there getting his oranges and taking off the tree and squeezing it straight into your glass. Like it's this kind of, it's already the imagery is that it should be straight from the tree right into the glass rather than that maybe they're not showing the cleaning the fruit, pasteurizing it. Uh, <laughs> they're, not, they're not actually showing. Maybe you take concentrate, you freeze it down, you're going to use some portion of it, dilute it back with water, makes more affordable product. You know, I mean, they don't, they're not showing any of that. <laughs> like the, the imagery becomes, you know, what you, you expect this thing to look like. And so I wonder if part of it is that power of what we think this should be. Yeah, I mean, I think I think some people there, you know, there's there's and, and there's some truth to this idea, too, that sometimes some of the things that we do to our vegetables, for example, um, can decrease their nutritional value, right? Like if we, you know, cook them at high temperatures, and for a long time, you know, we can contaminate some of the good chemicals that we want in our in our bodies. But there's also this, you know, in some ways, if we go to the extreme, too, I mean, I've been watching with fascination, this raw juice, uh, you know, thing, right? Oh, your raw pressed juices, this is great. I mean, it can't be healthier than, you know, fire up, a, you know, a bunch of fruit and just right into your glass without pasteurizing it. Um, and, you know, I, I recently had a baby and there's warnings everywhere, like pregnant women, do not drink these juices. <laughs> you know, they're full of all kinds of potential, you know, potentially full of all kinds of bacteria that can damage your fetus. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> there, there's, there's a reason why we pasteurize you know, certain products in order to send them out to a lot of people and, and prevent them from getting sick. Yeah, there's all kinds of limits. I think, too, is 
Uh, you know, there, there's even a whole socioeconomic political movement in these kind of food or, or everything you have should be organic and you should be, you know, all of this stuff. Like I'm thinking if you're on one of these juice diets, which for some people with their various allergies or sensitivities or pregnant women are avoiding certain things, besides that is the cost, right? I live in a part of the country where getting access to certain food products, they may be in the store, but the cost of them is like, <laughs> so even having this diet, this kind of new hot diet or this new hot thing you've got to drink or eat or, you know, only have your organic salt, yes, there is organic salt, um, is that you look at the cost and you go, that's very exclusionary. Like if it's if it's really your you know the the kind of selling of that, and this is what you should have, and it's a health issue. But then you look at the cost, and you go, really? Like this little this eight ounce you know all juice whatever with the power whatever would cost me twelve dollars to make, and this it really like <laughs> that I think there's that whole issue as well that that comes into this of. The, the kind of money that these alternative, all-natural, organic things are being played up to be when, is this really a health issue then? Do, do we need it for health? There's lots of good articles years ago about rinsing fruits, how best to maybe rinse fruits and veg so that we're kind of getting rid of not only dirt, but other, you know, things, you know, we, we you know, to get crops at the level we need them, we're going to use pesticides, herbicides, you know, all those things. How best then to minimize our exposure besides controlling application is, you know, certain rinsing steps and how we treat these things and all of that. I mean, all of these things, those are legitimate concerns. I don't want to minimize. I want to be clear that I am not minimizing people's concerns about being exposed to certain classes of chemicals. Um, because if you're wanting to, you know, know more about, you know, their impact on your health, if you have children and you are in complete control of their dietary needs and I mean, all of these things, you know, how best to feed your family, all of that is the reason why we should be having more conversations about the chemistry, about what's really a health issue and what's maybe more of a scare issue and also talking about costs and how best to kind of meet your goals while also not breaking your budget like that that those are real practical ways of which chemistry impacts people every day when they're trying to make decisions about what to eat and drink and to kind of get through all the hype to cut down to the real issue um, and there's some great science you know kind of food bloggers food scientists that are, are out there and they really do some great stuff. John Copeland is one. He's a food scientist at Penn State, I believe. He did great blogs about the recent, you know, uh, brominated vegetable oil that was in some pops um, that got recent recall. What's it all about? What's it used for? So I think that it's, I, I guess I, I just want to stress that it's not, it's not a minimization of concern. I think that, and just kind of hand waving it off, like you shouldn't be worried. It's, you know what? The, re the reaction might be, especially if you're a parent or if you've got other health issues, hey, I'm worried. And that's okay, but then it's the next step of let's dig deeper. Who can I ask? What information is, is really valuable? And to cut through the fear and to actually make, um, hopefully, an informed decision, the best decision for you and your family.
Well, that's, you know, you do a really wonderful job of making chemistry interesting, um, you know, on, on blogs and on your Twitter feed. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's one thing, too, that is clearly one of your passions and something that you're really quite good at. So I wanted to just ask you a little bit about why on Twitter are you Dr. Rubidium? Ah, well, I think anybody who's ever either been in a chemistry class or definitely is a chemist has looked at the periodic table and said, are my initials on there? <laughs> And being Rachel Burks, they are, and I am rubidium, RB, and so atomic number 37, uh, which is the name of one of my blogs. Um, And so that is uh, why I am Dr. Rubidium. Uh, so for the, for the dorkiest of reasons. <laughs> so our listeners can follow you on Twitter, Dr. Rubidium, um, and can read your blog. Is it called 37? Yes. Oh, well, it's at Scientopia, but if you just, yeah, 37. 37 at, at Scientopia. We can learn more about what you're doing and how you're bringing chemistry, you're making it cool, and even talking about, uh, you know, how the chemistry of poisons can affect uh, decisions that people like those who are writing Game of Thrones might make. Yes. Well, I love anything with, you know, science and sci-fi. I'm a huge pop culture nerd. Um, and I love, you know, comic books and tabletop games and sci-fi fantasy horror are my kind of go-to genres. And there's all kinds of science in there. And it's a great way to do science outreach is to kind of bring in those genres. And, you know, fans know if you're, if you're a fan of a particular genre, you know, so much about it, right? You are you are gobbling it up, and you are asking the tough questions, and you are analytical mind. I mean, you really want to get into, you know, why this particular Marvel character couldn't have done that thing, you know, or or what whatever the the issue is. And so, it's really fun to talk about chemistry of whether it's you know zombies or Game of Thrones or there's lots of chemistry actually in board games because there's often like an alchemist character. You know, there's chemistry, and of course, if you branch it out beyond chemistry and you talk about biology, there's tons of opportunities, physics, there's tons of opportunities to talk about science in these genres, and it's just a fun, it's a fun way to get, you know, good science conversations going, even if you're predicting, you know, the craziest of of scenarios. It's a really fun way to get talking about it. So maybe if I had read some of your writings, I might have made a different decision in my first year of undergraduate. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't <laughs> know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Rachel Burks. Thank you. So she is so fun to listen to. Can I just say that? Like, I, I really, I really think her energy is great. I think her explanations are great. And God, you know, you, you almost need to write a book about this problem of people misunderstanding chemistry and being completely scared. I know it drives chemists crazy. Every time you, you talk to them, they're like, they're terrified of these things that are harmless and they're not terrified of the things that can really harm them, like smoking. I mean, or alcohol consumption over a lifetime. They're worried about this stuff in their, their food. Like, we've got to adjust our risk calculations. And again, that point really comes across here. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the time is now to really start a whole new vocabulary to talk about these things, right? We can't just talk about chemicals. We can't just talk about things that are natural or organic. We need to become much more specific. We need to agree on what it is that we're talking about. And then we can do the studies to figure out, you know, what is what we need to fear and what is harmless and what can actually help us. Like, you know, the way she says that you can get cheap vitamins that are synthetically manufactured that are just as effective. That's not all vitamins, but some of them are. And so we need to figure out instead of just saying, look, all natural is good, all synthetic is bad. You know, we need to find the nuance and figure out a new vocabulary to talk about this stuff. I don't think the marketers are going to give up on natural anytime soon. I don't think they're going to be able to stop them. I don't know if you saw this latest Chobani thing too. No. Um, they on in, in their yogurt containers they wrote, they said something like you know we're a hundred percent natural. No, you know we we were created by farmers, not scientists. Or I'm I'm totally paraphrasing. And of course, this has gotten the Twitter sphere up in arms because mm. yogurt <laughs> has a lot of science behind it, right? Pasteurization, you know, putting in the bacteria, you know, all of that is done by science. So it's just you know totally misplaced. Hmm. Okay, well this is a this is a big topic and we could even say more, but thanks for thanks for doing this interview and getting it getting it before everybody. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank all of you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiring minds at climatedesk.org. And we just want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Harry's Razors, a new company that is disrupting the shaving industry by, at long last, making a high-quality shaving experience eminently affordable. It only costs 15 bucks to get a Harry's Razor set, including a handle, three blades, and shave cream shipped right to your door. There's even a custom engraving option to put your initials on the razor. And in fact, today, a Harry's shaving set costs even less than that because we have a special offer for our Inquiring Minds listeners. If you go to Harry's Dot com and use the promo code inquiring minds you can save five dollars off your first purchase so head on over to harrys.com now inquiring minds is produced by adam isaac in cooperation with climate desk a journalistic collaboration that includes the atlantic the center for investigative reporting the guardian grist mother jones slate wired and the huffington post our music is provided by the award-winning producer rian sheehan and we're your hosts i'm chris mooney and i'm indre viscontis Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.